0: be more introspective on how food makes you feel, how does fasting make you feel, using food and fasting as a mindfulness practice. So intuitive fasting is just how I've seen intermittent fasting work really well for people. That's why I wrote Intuitive Fasting. It's for biohackers that want a healthier relationship with these things, and more isn't always better. But as a ripple effect of metabolic flexibility, you will just randomly, intuitively fast because you have a more sound relationship and an awareness on what works for your body and what doesn't.
1: Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Welcome back to
2: the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Friends, I have had a lot of conversations about fasting. You guys know this. I am also the host of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. So talking about fasting is sort of what I do all the time. I say this in the episode, but I honestly think that this conversation with Dr. Will Cole was my favorite conversation that I've ever had about fasting. (laughs) I had Dr. Cole previously on the podcast For his book, The Inflammation Spectrum. Friends, if you at all struggle with autoimmunity or really just inflammatory responses to food, definitely check out that episode. So I was definitely super excited to bring him back for this episode for his new book, Intuitive Fasting. It was so amazing. I originally had this episode scheduled for way later to air, but I just wanted to get it out there because it was just that great. In particular, we tackle something that I am haunted by, which is basically the role of intuitive eating in today's culture. Our modern environment makes it really hard to eat intuitively. And so I think the whole intuitive eating movement is very complex. A lot of people like to issue intuitive eating completely by having clear rules and boundaries. Think Glenn Livingston's Never Binge Again. That's personally what I do as well. But I also think intuitive eating is really great if you can be in touch with your own relationship with food. I just think it's so complex. And I really, really enjoyed this conversation with Dr. Will Cole, all about it. And of course, all about fasting, Oh my goodness, it is just so, so amazing. The show notes for today's episode will be at melanieavalon.com slash intuitive fasting. Those show notes will have a complete transcript, so definitely check that out. There will also be two episode giveaways for this episode. One will be in my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting Plus Real Foods Plus Life. Comment something you learned or something that resonated with you on the pinned post to enter to win something I love. There will be a second giveaway on my Instagram, similar spiel. Look for the post about this episode and comment there. If you are enjoying this show, it would mean the absolute world, world, world. If you could write a brief iTunes review, it helps so much more than most people realize just for establishing credibility, helping the show rank in the charts and just getting it more out there. So thank you so much in advance for that. All right. Without further ado, please enjoy this wonderful conversation with Dr. Will Cole. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the show. I am so incredibly excited about the conversation that I am about to have. It is with a repeat guest. That's when you know that you have someone good on the show. And this guest has actually written three books, and I have read all of them. So I read his first book, Ketotarian, which we haven't done an episode on that, but I think we can probably touch a little bit on it in today's show, which is very, very exciting. And then he wrote The Inflammation spectrum, which I did do an episode on that. That was such a wonderful, enlightening conversation all about obviously inflammation, but particularly things like autoimmune conditions. And I just refer listeners to that episode all the time. So if you haven't listened to it, definitely check it out. But now we come to today's episode, which is the book, Intuitive Fasting, the Flexible Four-Week Intermittent Fasting Plan to Recharge Your Metabolism and Renew Your Health. And friends, I was obviously very much intrigued and alert by the title of the book because I'm immersed deep in the fasting world. I'm also the host of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast, and I'm always really, really curious when a new book or work comes out on fasting, what the approach will be, what information will be in there, what new things might I learn. And I learned so much, and I'm just really, really excited to dive deep into it today. So yes, I am here with Dr. Will Cole, the fabulous author of all of those books. So Dr. Cole, thank you so much for being here.
0: Thank you so much. It was really nice. I need you to be my hype man every day. And I just feel so good about myself. Thank you.
2: <laughs> Surely I can do that. Sign me up. <laughs> but yes, I really, really mean all of that. And so, like I said, fasting is like my life, especially having the other show. I'm, I'm constantly researching it and learning about it and getting questions about it. So I'm always really, really curious when something especially like a whole book comes out on it. Like, you know, what will be the approach here? And not to say that I know everything, but you know, what new things will I learn from this book? And I was really excited to read it because there was so much of that. I mean, that's a good place to start. For listeners who are not familiar with you, would you like to briefly touch a little bit on your personal story? And I'm dying to know what led you to write a book on fasting and not just fasting, but intuitive fasting.
0: Yeah. So my day job, my main, main focus, 11 hours a day, I'm running a functional medicine telehealth center. I started one of the first functional medicine telehealth centers in the world over a decade ago. So my entire career has been via webcam consultation, and we ship labs to people around the world and provide them a functional medicine perspective on their health issues. So that's 8 a.m., 7 p.m., Throughout the week, that's what I'm focusing on. The books that you mentioned, Ketotarian, The Inflammation Spectrum, and now Intuitive Fasting are just ripple effects of my obsession with my patients' cases and trying to figure out the root components of their health issues and have just immersing myself in the research in in functional medicine and these people's journey that I take extremely seriously. So it's easy for me to write about these things when you're talking about them all day long with people. So intuitive fasting, well, let me back up a little bit. Intermittent fasting are things that are in different aspects or different ways to use fasting, has been part of my clinical expertise and a tool within the functional medicine toolbox for my whole career. And even prior to me being in functional medicine, I started fasting myself as a teenager. I was a weird kid. And I would buy all these random fasting books. My first book that I read on this was when I was probably 17 years old, maybe 16 even younger. A guy called Jordan Rubin, who's still doing amazing things in the health space, he wrote a book called Patient Heal Thyself, which has been since republished and like everything. But I think the original one was self-published. It was very much like a very early book about the fact that how he used many different things, fasting being one of them, to help deal and manage and reverse his ulcerative colitis, his Crohn's, his autoimmune inflammatory bowel issues. So I was experimenting with that early on and my dad was a bodybuilder and, and if you know anything about the bodybuilding community in the world, the industry, fasting and ketosis is a major part of that as well. So since the 80s as a little kid and then in the 90s as a teenager. Fasting's been part of my life on a personal level too. So then the ripple effect of that and me being formally trained in functional medicine and clinical nutrition, it's just went on to a a professional level, not just a personal level. So... Over the past decade, when I'm dealing with people with different inflammatory GI issues or chronic fatigue syndrome or Lyme disease or co-infection or mycotoxin, mold issues or autoimmune problems or in other brain health issues, intermittent fasting is an amazing tool within that toolbox and not just intermittent fasting, but different fasting protocols can be a great consideration that I'm clinically monitoring people over and with and and coaching them and guiding them through these variables that are at play and getting their labs looking really great and fasting is a part of that tool. So intuitive fasting is just how I've seen intermittent fasting work really well for people. It's as its name implies, a mindful, intuitive approach to intermittent fasting. And when I wrote the book, I started writing the book over 2019, at the beginning of 2019, and then over 2020, and then came out just not too long ago in 2021 and when I wrote it I thought you know what this is there's not been a book like this about intermittent fasting a a mindful just bringing together the world of mindfulness and sort of inward introspective approach to checking in with your body and how can you use intermittent fasting in a more mindful way it's not been done I thought this is going to be the most uncontroversial but poignant and important book on the topic coming from my perspective, right? This is what I thought I could bring to the conversation, I guess, what I'm trying to say. It was controversial when it came out with a few people. I mean, a, a few... Loud groups of people, mainly the eating disorder community, the body positivity community, the intuitive eating community, really took offense to a book they've never read. And they would, if they just would have read the book, they would have known that I, this wasn't. I wasn't advocating for eating disorders. This is not an eating disorder disguised as a wellness practice. This was a very mindful, measured, practical, healthy relationship with intermittent fasting, and that has been my clinical experience for the past decade. And intermittent fasting is nothing new, like I mentioned clinically, but I also wrote about intermittent fasting in the inflammation spectrum and in Ketotarian because it's been part of my books as well. I just wanted to have a bigger, broader, deeper discussion on how I've seen this work for people long term. And in, in many ways, it's it's the past two book coming together in, in these different aspects with, that I've seen patients do really w- well with because so much of the fasting books that are out there, they're great and solid science. I just didn't the, the world didn't need another fasting book, in my opinion, because the science is has been explained, and there's brilliant books about that. But a lot of the fasting community, of which you you know you're a part of as well, a, a lot of the the doctors or the health professionals or the books that are coming out there are more coming from that biohacker space and. I feel like there's a certain sect of the biohacking community or people that don't even identify as biohackers themselves, but they want to get into this biohacking stuff, but they're not that alpha sort of personality where they want a more measured approach to this and a more mindful approach. So I think that's why I wrote Intuitive Fasting. It's for biohackers that want a healthier relationship with these things and more isn't always better. But it's for all, for all the other people that don't even know that they're biohackers that I wanted to bring them into the community and say, look, you don't have to be Ben Greenfield. And I love Ben Greenfield, but you don't have to be that level of immersion in wellness to get involved in these amazing tools that I've seen impact people's lives for the positive.
2: I'm so excited to talk more about this because when the book came out, I saw the controversy surrounding all of it from the different communities. And... I understand why that happened because it's such a sensitive and complex topic that requires a lot of nuance and takes into so many factors. You know, there's not just the diet, there's diet, there's behavior, there's, you know, your psychology, there's all of this that goes into it. And I just want to say first of all, I I'm, I'm really sorry. It can be really frustrating when people don't actually read what you wrote and then comment on it. <laughs> that can be a little bit frustrating. But in any case, I'd love to talk a little bit more about all of that because something I think about a lot, like a lot. So, on the eating side, because maybe we can talk about the eating before going more into the fasting, this whole concept of intuitive eating, I'm really haunted by this concept because, on the one hand, yes, I feel like we should be able to eat intuitively. You know, our bodies are set up to find nutrition. We should be able to eat when we're hungry, stop when we're not there's this idea if we can just, you know, get past the emotions of it, we should all be able to be intuitive. But on the flip side, I don't know, and this is my question for you, I don't know if it's always actually possible to be, quote, intuitive in the environment that we're in. So like processed foods, can you be intuitive with processed foods? Or if you're in a state of inflammation, can you still be intuitive? Like, how do you... Interpret the signals of your body, how do you know what's a craving and what's an actual need? I think about this so much. so what are your what are your thoughts on all of that?
0: I mean that's really the genesis of of the book of what I wanted to have a conversation about is is how can we have or can we have a mindful intuitive approach to intermittent fasting and to a mindful approach to eating, because I see the conversations on social media and within the community about intuitive eating, which, look, capital I, capital E, intuitive eating, there was a book in the 90s that was written about this topic, and I wanted to have a functional medicine conversation about mindful eating and mindful fasting and so it's a multi-tiered conversation about metabolic flexibility because when somebody's metabolically inflexible meaning they they are as you say struggling with chronic inflammation blood sugars all over the place they're bound by insatiable cravings and hangriness and fatigue and blood sugar roller coasters so at that point it's very true and this is how i open up the book is that is it hangriness? Is it intuition? Is it in blood sugar imbalances or is it intuition? Is it, is it other hormonal imbalances or intuition? Is it insatiable cravings or intuition? Because all of these things are proverbial noises on a physiological level that will drown out that resolute, still small voice of your intuition. So it's really nice to say on social media, I'm an intuitive eater and that's just how people identify. And with the toxic tribalism that's going on on social media specifically that's their little echo chamber of this is who we are and we're, we're, we're anti-diet culture and we're going to be this militant sort of cult around our thing because they have just been so burned by diet culture that then they're sort of seething in their own rightness. But And look, diet culture and what diet culture has done to – a lot of people in the form of shaming people is what i'm trying to say is shaming people into wellness and obsessing and being sort of this negative shaming your way into wellness is the antithesis of the message that i speak antithesis of sustainable wellness i mean you can't heal a body you hate is something that i say ad infinitum i say it so many times because it's i as a functional medicine practitioner i've seen people try to do this so i agree that diet culture is messed up and can and shaming your way into wellness is is not going to happen but the result then is this rebound like equally opposite other extreme where they suspend all science they suspend all logic that you can somehow intuitively eat junk food and somehow that's going to bring about you feeling great in your body it's just not possible i mean over Sixty percent of the United States has a massive blood sugar problem. This is most people. This isn't some rare sect of people. So if Capital I Capital E Intuitive Eating works for you, and that book resonated with you, that's great. But you're not the majority of the United States. The majority of the United States has a massive blood sugar problem, and they're somewhere on that inflammation spectrum. More, more specifically, the insulin resistant inflammation spectrum. It's that one spoke on that. A spectrum that i talk about in the inflammation spectrum so at that point the majority of the hu- human race specifically in the west today are struggling with hangriness and insatiable cravings their cravings that that hangriness is going to drive them towards invariably most of the time will drive them towards things that perpetuate their problems and they're going to feel horrible in their own body and they're actually going to be decreasing their quality of life so if you really love somebody or if you really love yourself is that You have to ask the question, is that really your intuition? So we can make it sound nice. We can put a nice filter on it for social media on Instagram. We can make it a hashtag. We can make it a tribe. We can say all these things, but I'm talking to these people offline, meaning off social media. I'm talking to them online via webcam privately, and they're told by their different specialists or their eating disorder intuitive eating, eating disorder coach, and they're being told to eat all these foods that make them feel horrible. The reality is it's not going to bring about health. If it works for you, keep on doing it. But many people are not served by those broad sweeping overgeneralized statements where they're romanticizing junk food and and calling it self-love. Feeding chronic disease isn't self love. It's actually metabolic problems. So that's part of the conversation that I wanted to have in the book.
2: Hi, friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th Annual Biohacking Conference, May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando. And it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course there's lots of danger coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and dry farm wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples, try samples. Meet the Creators and Founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person, things like Braintap, Infrared Sauna, Hyperbaric Oxygen Chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. I found the solution and guess what? I have a discount for you guys. So the founder of a company called Soulshine reached out to me and he was like, do you know about the importance of full spectrum light? And I was like, you know what? I've been wondering about this for quite a while. Please educate me. Oh my goodness. This man blew my mind. I talk a lot about the problems of blue light. That said, we evolved in natural full spectrum sunlight that our genes are programmed to respond to. And today we do not spend enough time in that light A lot of us don't go outside and we're overexposed to blue light. It's a problem. And then to make things even more problematic, the common sad lights that I was talking about that are bright white, they actually do not contain the full spectrum light. They filter out certain wavelengths and they're high in blue light. So just like I thought it was not doing my health, I am just so grateful that Ken at Soulshine found me because I was missing out on such a key aspect of light, and I had no idea. And you can get ten percent off at MelanieAvalon.com/soulshine. That's S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E. I'm just so excited to talk to you about this. Yeah. So the other day I was listening to one of my favorite podcasts and I I love the host. I love the show, but it was with an intuitive eating person and they were talking about how, you know, how you should work to eat intuitively and, you know, be able to have one Oreo or some root beer and, and... (laughs) I listened to so many podcasts and literally, I not that I was yelling at the podcast, but I was just like, I don't know if this is the right message here because I do think some people can depending on their personality type or their current state of inflammation or blood sugar or whatever some people can eat in moderation foods that I, I don't think are benefiting the body processed foods things like that I am not one of them um, <laughs> and you know more power to them but I think so many people like you said it doesn't encourage that and they feel like failures in a way if they can't eat just one because they feel like they should be able to eat intuitively when maybe maybe it's just not possibility to eat intuitively with these things. Another layer from that. so if there was a person who does not have metabolic issues, does not have blood sugar regulation, inflammation, do you think there's still like two types of people like some people who can eat whole foods intuitively and some people who just can't like like I know for me, I, I just love food and that's why fasting works so well for me. So even when I'm eating, whole foods, I can eat a lot. And once I'm eating, I like to keep eating. And that's why I said, again, fasting works so well. Like, do you think there are still two types of people when it comes to that? Or do you think everybody can reach a state of pure food intuition with eating?
0: Genetics play a part of that for sure. And people's own early relationship, like the mental, emotional, spiritual component to someone's relationship with food, and their body definitely plays a role on that. So that side of things and the genetic side of things, there's definitely some, those facets that are at play when it comes to somebody's ability to be more mindful when it comes to food and satiety signaling. A large part of that conversation that I'm having in intuitive fasting is the fact that metabolic inflexibility or rigidity That stuff that drowns out that intuition, the more metabolically flexible somebody comes it, it they were for themselves the more flexibility they have the more fat burning and sugar burning flexibility that they have in their body that lowers inflammation levels that balances blood sugar levels that optimizes satiety signaling and the brain's communication with the endocrine system and the gut brain access is improved all of that stuff from a functional medicine perspective is are the physiological infrastructure stuff that you have to physically build for your body to have a more sound Aware, mindful, introspective relationship with food in your body. So even you doing fasting, you're mindful of what works for your body and what doesn't. And that's really the conversation that I want people to have. But they're not even conscious enough to even know what the, what works for their body and what doesn't because they're so bound by the inflammation and the blood sugar imbalances and the hormonal imbalances. So when the w- way that I built the protocol and in intuitive fasting, it's these vacillating, ebbing and flowing expanding and contracting eating and fasting windows so it's a way to add the analogy that i use in the book is this proverbial yoga class for your metabolism if somebody goes to yoga they've never done yoga before their hamstrings are tight their core is weak their body's just like never done it before they could go to yoga and even a beginner's yoga class and they're going to think what the heck yoga is completely unnatural this is how could the human body ever do this? But it's, and they could blame yoga and say, you know, yoga's not for me. Yoga's not my jam. But the reality is it's not yoga's fault. It's their own inflexibility. Most people are bound by that inflexibility right now on a metabolic level. And they'll do intermittent fasting, and it's going to seem completely unnatural. And on one level, look, it's paradoxical on purpose. Fasting will be anything but intuitive when someone's metabolically inflexible. But the more flexibility somebody builds for themselves, they're going to be able to calm that noise, hear that intuition, have proper signaling pathways to, to be able to have a healthier, more balanced relationship when it comes to food and fasting. And fasting will be more intuitive when you're metabolically inflexible not because it's restrictive, not because it's disordered eating, disguised as a wellness practice, but because you can go longer without eating because you're more stable, because you're more metabolically flexible. So that's the other side of the coin of metabolic flexibility. You can use intermittent fasting to gain metabolic flexibility, but as a ripple effect of metabolic flexibility, you will just randomly intuitively fast because you have a more sound relationship and an awareness on what works for your body and what doesn't. So that's what you notice in your life. Like you feel the best having this balanced relationship with fasting and eating, and you know your body. And it's a tool within your toolbox to continue your health journey. And that's what I want for everybody. And what I call in the book food peace is having this inner peace with food, because so many people are at war with their body and at war when it comes to food and food is their enemy. But yet this medication that they use to make them feel better, and they feel oftentimes completely out of control. So I don't want people to Have an unhealthy obsessive control, which is disordered eating, but have a stillness on food peace of saying, I can eat whatever I want, but I want to eat things that make me feel good. And avoiding foods that don't make me feel good isn't restrictive, it's self respect. And I like feeling great more than I thought that I missed something that made me feel really lousy. That's what food peace is. And intermittent fasting and the food protocol that I put in the book is really built towards people discovering that for themselves. Because that's our birthright. Fasting is encoded in our DNA. Homeostasis is encoded in our DNA. If we allow our body the time to find that for ourselves, we could start to feel great and feeling alive in our body because most people, they feel really miserable in their skin. And it's physiological stuff that's really fueling that. Chronic inflammation doesn't feel good. Blood sugar imbalance doesn't feel good. It just you're not going to feel good. And like I said, you can make it sound great on social media, and it's going to be your highlight reel of, of, of this amazing way that you are going to fight diet culture. But I promise you, metabolic disorders doesn't feel good, any way you put it.
2: Yeah. All of that resonates with me so much. And for listeners, Dr. Cole touched on it, but if you get the book, there is a very, very detailed specific plan to follow, which is so incredibly helpful for people who want to jump into this, especially for people who are the type that like the plans and, you know, something to follow. So I just want to thank you so much for that resource. A question about the nuance of intuitive fasting You talk about, you know, the evolution of fasting throughout history, throughout culture, and also, you know, biologically, why we are so just set up and made for fasting. One could argue or say that the the benefits of fasting are because the body is, you know, anticipating starvation and upregulating all of these genetic changes to adapt and deal with not having food for a while. So in that context how does fasting become intuitive? And what I mean by that is, how do you know in a fast, time-wise or hours-wise, when it is intuitive, when you should be fasting, and when you should actually be eating? Like, how should we interpret hunger cues versus cravings? How do we know (laughs) if we should keep fasting or not?
0: And, you know, that's, The part of the criticism, like the critique, the pontification on social media is like, well, why is he giving us a protocol in a book that's called Intuitive Fast? I mean, look, the, I didn't realize this again. I, I'm so in my functional medicine clinical bubble when the book came out, and part of it was the fact that Gwyneth Paltrow wrote the forward of the book, and Gwyneth Paltrow is a friend of mine and patient of mine, and and has was involved with the book, and she's a lightning rod for these things. Anyways, I think I could have, I could have written a book about world peace, and there would have been negativity about, about the book because people are just so triggered; they're addicted to being triggered, just like they're addicted to junk food. So the Re- the reality is that I built the protocol in the book is be- to actually train that metabolism. So just like that yoga class, you have to gain some flexibility and strength and a mindfulness. I mean, yoga is a mindfulness practice as well. The analogy works really well with intermittent fasting because you have to gain some flexibility for just like the yoga practitioner, the, something that, someone that does yoga, the, the yogi, it becomes their own practice. And it, it, you needed the beginning training at the beginning to become your own practice. And then you'll evolve intuitively that yoga practice as you learn about your body and get better at that skill set. That is exactly what's happening with intermittent fasting here. At the beginning, it will not be intuitive. And the difference between hunger cues and satiety signaling and cravings, all of that will be disillusioning and confusing at the beginning. That's why I put the vertical together. You can start to calm that noise, check in with your body. And so on a physiological level, we're building the physical things like better blood sugar balance, lowered inflammation, better gut-brain access communication, all that stuff, better brain function, all that stuff's happening through beta-hydroxybutyrate and the pathways that are what researchers are exploring on these health benefits of intermittent fasting. All right, we're building that. But on a mental, emotional, mindful, spiritual level- the book's not just about intermittent fasting either. I bring in what are they called these metaphysical meals into the book, into the protocol, and that's what I have my patients do as well, is be more introspective on how food makes you feel, how does fasting make you feel, you, using food and fasting as a mindfulness practice using food and fasting as a meditation, just like yoga, you're starting to get introspective on how food and fasting makes you feel. So you're not just building the physiological stuff that we're building through the health benefits of intermittent fasting, but we're also growing awareness and mindfulness around these practices and around these tools. So the answer won't be clear cut at the beginning, but the more you practice this, the more you find that rhythm to your body the more you're checking in with your body, checking in with your energy levels, checking in with your digestion, checking in with your sleep levels, your sleep pattern through the night, checking in with your brain function. All of these things, you are, these are aspects of mindfulness practice that I'm having a person do through the protocol. Then at that point, they're going to know, oh, I felt better when I did more of this. I'm going to do more of this type of fasting because each week in the protocol is a different type of intermittent fasting or time compressed feeding, which is the specific subset of intermittent fasting that I'm exploring in the book. So each week you will have grown an awareness and how that time made you feel. And then you're going to be able to evolve that practice just like a yogi can to, to suit your body. And that's bio-individuality. We're all different. That's the heart of functional medicine. So people after maybe two or three cycles of the four-week protocol in the book will evolve it intuitively to suit their body because we are all different. Not everybody needs the same types of intermittent fasting. And maybe somebody needs the least amount for this season of their life, like a 12-12 time of compressed feeding, which is very basic. It is very unsexy in the fasting world, but it's a great that some people can rest in for a while, so that's you know seven a.m. to seven p.m. or eight a.m. to eight p.m. You're eating, and then you're basically just fasting through the night until you break the fast at breakfast. That's a tool that we use in the book because that's a baseline for most humans to find, and then from there you can expand and contract that eating and fasting window. So that's how I see it: is that you will start to be more curious about your body and more curious about how food and fasting makes you feel. And over time, that practice will evolve intuitively because you're going to be constantly be mindful about how these things made you feel. That's what intuitive fasting is about.
1: It's
2: such a complicated nuance that, I mean, you just touched on all of it with, you know, intuition. You think, well, if it's intuition, you should be able to just do it. You know, like you shouldn't need rules or instructions or boundaries. But I was just thinking about it, like, so many things, I mean, you use yoga as an example, but so many things that we do as human beings naturally that is in our normal capability for life, we were taught that by parents. Like, you know, like it required some sort of teaching and guidance, even though it's, quote, intuitive. Like we're able to do it as human beings, you know, walking. Well, I don't know if reading is intuitive, but just so many things in our, in our daily life. So, and I'm just wondering, do you think if you had titled the book something different, but had the exact same book, it wouldn't have received any, any backlash? Like, do you think it was just because it was called intuitive fasting?
0: That's part of it. Yeah, that's, that was definitely part of the controversy. I think it was a mixture of me, someone outside, like if in functional medicine, A, B, Gwyneth Paltrow, people just don't, they don't even need to know any context and then see the title of the book. And yeah, these are the main things. And the reality is I wouldn't change the book title at all because I think it, it's a it's a perfect it's a perfect symbol for what the book's about and it in, in a way I'm I like I would never I wouldn't change it at all. There were way more positive stuff than negative stuff, but that pocket of like negativity wasn't even negative at the end of the day. I'm blessed and privileged to be able to write a book and have these conversations. I'm so thankful for it. And it's a teaching moment to to our culture that I think that is has a lot of problems on many different levels when it comes to social media and how they talk to people and how you would Never say th- something, like I, the half of the things that people said, they'd never say to my face. But they can just type and be what, keyboard warriors and these online trolls and be negative. And it doesn't matter to me. At the end of the day, I know what the book's about. And I know anybody that read the book will get the message. And the reality is, look at what's happening in our culture right now, just on a health level. It's like, yeah, people are really messed up when there comes the relationship with food. And the idea that fasting could be intuitive, that's what's triggering you, That is just shows you where the state of the fragility of our culture, I mean, talk about our privileged fragility, that you can even have a book with that title and it's so triggering to people. We have bigger problems in the world. And I think that when you really look at that, fasting has been used mindfully and intuitively for a long time. I'm just reminding people of our roots. Fasting has been used as a meditative practice in every spiritual tradition there is. It's used in Judaism with Yom Kippur and Tish Ba'av. It's used in Islam during Ramadan, which is, you know, we're just ending people that are Muslim, just ending that around this time. It's used in indigenous cultures around the world. It's used in Christianity around Lent. It's used as a meditative practice for monks around the world. it's, It's used as a spiritual practice. That's really what I'm talking about. It's remembering that these things, intermittent fasting, fasting is part of our DNA on a physical level because from an ancestral health perspective, Our genetics haven't changed in 10,000 years, but our world has changed very dramatically in a very finite period of time. And humans, because of food scarcity, would have evolved through times of fasting. And that's where a lot of the healing benefits can be upregulated because we're decreasing the chasm between genetics and epigenetics. We're decreasing the mismatch between genetics and epigenetics. So, yeah, that's on a physical level the health science, the, the exciting health benefits of intermittent fasting. But look, Fasting's also encoded in our spiritual DNA because it's been used throughout time. No matter what ancestral connection you have, no matter where your ancestors are from around the world, chances are fasting was used intuitively for both spiritual purposes and health purposes. So I'm just having a modern conversation about this topic, and we are so divorced from our roots as a culture that me just reminding people of where we came from is triggering for people. And that says more about our culture and the state of where we're at, that fasting and healthy food that is in alignment with our physiology and and, and in our DNA. The fact that that's offensive is more of a a statement of where we're at as a culture and how far we've removed ourselves from our roots. I mean, you just spoke a
2: lot about change. And so I just finished reading Dr. Robert Lustig's new book, Metabolical, which is all about the processed food industry. (laughs) I never want to eat a processed food ever again. But one thing he talks about in that book is what is required for change in a culture. And he talks about like education alone doesn't work. There has to be some sort of implementation beyond that. Your book is education. Like it's educating so many people on the situation and how how to change yourself with these plans and and these dietary changes and these mindset changes. How do you feel though about like making lasting change? And this is kind of like a side note tangent, but lasting change in the culture from like a, Regulation perspective. So, like in the processed food industry, do you think that there should actually be regulation there, or that we should fight to not have these types of foods available, or do you think it should be more, you know, up to the individual and that we shouldn't
0: really address that? Well, I mean, I'm coming from a functional medicine clinician perspective. Obviously, I'm giving my clinical opinion, my personal opinion too, and by no means am I a policymaker or know the ins and outs of the 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 unintended consequences of certain things from a policy standpoint. I'm not going to pretend that I I know all of that. But coming from my side of things, someone that's been in the wellness world for a long time, somebody that does this 11 hours a day consulting people about these topics, I don't know if overt regulation is really the answer. I think you can look historically and say that even if you look at prohibition with alcohol, is that really outlawing sugar? Is that really the, the solution? And maybe it's not going to be that extreme, but you know, putting government involved with the junk food industry fully, I think there's a middle ground. I think more than anything, what has to happen is education, has to be empowerment, and transparency, and that's the problem. I don't know if if more regulations are the answer. Some, maybe. Some logical, practical, measured things make sense, maybe. But I think more than anything, people need to be educated and empowered and informed, and they need to know They need to be able to see clearly and plainly what these things are. So maybe it's a warning label in some of those foods. Maybe it's very clearly, hey, if this is your choice, if you want to buy this, you can purchase it, but this is associated with this. Maybe it's that. Or maybe it's no warning label. Maybe it's nothing that extreme. Maybe it's just really empowering people or even like a colored system, a colored code system of like green, yellow, red of things that are more prone to driving metabolic issues and if you want to buy it just you you can make that choice i think that that that's changing the hearts and minds of people i think is where the solution's going to 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 lie, not in controlling industries like that. Even though I know the industries are corrupt and I know they are making these designer foods to make them addictive and they are cheap, which is completely messed up. But look, why are a lot of these junk foods and fast foods cheap? It's because of government subsidies and the way that the system works. So the government's already involved, involved and they're making these things really cheap for people. So I think that probably the answer is educating and empowering people and transparency so the people are actually can make that choice for themselves that's what i think i would say coming from a functional medicine perspective it would be my 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 instinct but obviously i'd I'd want to look at all the i'd want to look at both sides i know that's a new thing to some people but I, i want to look at both sides and see the variables at play here
2: the transparency issue is so, so important. I mean, if you think about it, there have been changes and things where at the time, probably people would have never anticipated there being a complete 180 on. to so like smoking or wearing seatbelts, <laughs> you know, like education and transparency did happen with that. So I'm hoping hoping with the processed food industry that there's that potential. It does bring up another nuance, which also kind of relates to something in your book though, because you were talking about the potential for like a a food rating system. So, you know, a color or kind of saying, you know, what is the metabolic health issue potential in this food? There's so much debate surrounding, you know, what is healthy? Oh my goodness. So, for your approach, like your first book, like I said, was ketotarian. You do talk about the ketotarian approach in your new book. So when it comes to health, what are your thoughts on plant-based versus animal-inclusive diets? What made you gravitate to a ketotarian approach? I know my listeners' ears are going to perk up because I think a lot of a lot of people especially in the the low carb community think that that low carb automatically means high animal protein and and it means less plants but you know you have an entire ketoitarian approach so what are your thoughts on all of that
0: and i want to echo what you just said i am fully aware that if if it was me like running the world and giving colored cysts like green yellow red it would be fine but In a diverse culture with free thinkers and different opinions, you probably couldn't do the the color-coded system because not everybody's going to agree. Unless there's some basic tenets that everybody agree, like maybe too much sugar, processed sugar isn't good for you, maybe we could agree on that. And maybe that's what the red, yellow, green would be like. The more sugar it would be in, maybe we could show it clearly in some way. But the debate when it comes to labeling is saturated fats and the even industrial seed oils. Like people are going to debate about those things. So I don't know if you're going to get a cohesive and that's what I mean, By no means am I a policymaker and understanding that this, I just want to empower people. I want to educate people. I want people to know about their bodies and know how foods impact their physiology. So I can change the hearts and minds with my patients and with people, with people that read the books or with people that listen to my podcasts or people that check me out on social media. That's my goal because I don't know if a system wide change like this is really going to happen in a way where everybody can agree because you get you get special interests involved and they're going to demonize whole macronutrients and make broad sweeping overgeneralized statements where nuance is lost and context is lost and fats are demonized in that way where the nuance and context is just completely lost. So ketotarian, it's my made up word again. And I, I'm, I think in hindsight, when I look at the things that I, I write about, I'm, I'm drawn to paradoxes, you know, mostly like plant-based and keto and intuition and fasting. And I, I think that this is something that I um, really see work with with people, people that take two seemingly opposite things, they get the best of both worlds without falling prey to the potential pitfalls of being all in in one way without looking at that context and nuance. And like, how do we do this for from a sustainable health standpoint? So what ketotarian really is, is a Mediterranean pescatarian, plant forward ketogenic diet. So it's not entirely vegan. It's not entirely vegetarian keto either. It is more what I call in the book, vegetarian. It's wild caught fish, it's fresh seafood, lots of vegetarian options too, like eggs, et cetera, and lots of of plant fats, like olives and avocados and non-starchy vegetables. So that's what ketotarian is. And that's one of the reasons why I wrote it in 2018 is because there was that massive keto conversation that was happening. And I had co-hosted Keto Talk for three years and I really wanted people to have this different approach or even if they weren't going to be entirely ket- ketotarian, they could at least have some pescatarian keto, vegetarian keto and vegan keto options in their omnivore clean, well-formulated nutrient-dense ketogenic diet. So that's it was a resource for people, even if they weren't strict ketotarian. And the book isn't strict anyways. And I talk about that in the book. And none of what I do is really dogmatic because I want this to be a flexible and approachable to people. And I talk about in the book how I bring grass-fed beef in and I'm I'm omnivore. I am just wanted that to be a resource for people to utilize in their life. And there are some people that just prefer eating pescatarian or prefer eating more vegetarian. So I just, I knew from the plant-based community, so many of them were carbitarians, depending on carbs and sugar for fuel to say, look, if you want to be more plant-based, let's do it in a way that's not going to wreck your metabolism. That's not going to wreck your gut. That's going to really not wreck inflammation levels. And we can support all these healthy balanced pathways in the body. So that's really what ketotarian's all about. And I. Don't think it's, I mean, even in intuitive fasting, there's many omnivore options in that book. I'm not against people eating good grass-fed beef. And, you know, I love Belcampo and I love these brands, these farms that are coming out with really good regenerative farming and they're the wave of the future. They are going to save the planet. Regenerative farmers are going to save the planet if we listen to them. So I'm not against meat. I I just think there has to be a nuanced conversation about this because the problem that I was seeing in the keto community in 2017 and 2018, and even before that, is that they were high fat, low carb at all costs. They were anything, if it was hashtag keto, if it was low carb, they were gonna go for it. And anything that lowered ketones was seen as like this devil and you should fear it. And you had a big sect of the ketogenic community at that time and even today they get caught up in fearing vegetables and fiber. And I know from a functional medicine standpoint that gut microbiome diversity and fiber has its place and should not be feared for the average person. So I think that that can create some unintended consequences when it comes to orthorexia, which I think is rampant within the low-carb and ketogenic community where they become fearing real foods. And look, there's a time and place for higher ketones. If you have a neurological disorder, if you have a seizure disorder, if you have different autoimmune problems that you're using higher ketones to attenuate those responses to, you're using the therapeutic benefits of higher ketones and you need that, of course, that you need to look at those things. But the average person that's just looking to feel great, optimize their brain, optimize their energy levels, become metabolically flexible, keep inflammation levels balanced, I don't know if long-term health, you becoming obsessive about macros is really the answer. I think it's a matter of really having this be flexible and a tool within the toolbox and not feeling like you should ha- have fear and, and dread over fiber from vegetables. So that's really what Ketotarian was the conversation that I'm having in that book.
2: And use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to get 10% off. Again, that is MelanieAvalon.com slash Danger Coffee with the coupon code Melanie Avalon for 10% off. This is my favorite coffee. Like I said, it takes some really good coffee and convincing biohacking health reasons to break me from my 10-year decade bulletproof coffee habit but sometimes you just got to upgrade. And by the way, this would make epic presents for people. This can just become your go-to present. Not only will people love it, but you'll be helping their health as well. Everybody wins. MelanieAvalon.com slash Danger Coffee with the coupon code Danger Coffee. Friends, you guys know I love wine. Do you love wine? I've done a lot of research on wine, and I truly believe there are a myriad of health benefits The longest-lived populations drink wine. The polyphenols have a ton of potential health benefits, activating anti-aging sirtuins, potentially supporting our immunity, maybe even encouraging weight loss. Yep, it's actually not alcohol that makes people gain weight. It's what they eat, They're not a wine producer, but rather a wine investigator. They go all throughout Europe and they find the wineries practicing organic practices and then they test those wines to make sure the wines are, wait for it, low alcohol, low sugar, free of toxins, free of mold, and truly supportive of your health. I'm obsessed with dry farm wines. One of the most fun things for me as a wine lover is you get mixed boxes of wine and it introduces you to varietals from all over the world. The wines taste amazing and you can say goodbye to hangovers. If you think you can't drink wine you've got to try dry farm wines i am obsessed you can get a bottle for a penny yes a penny just go to dryfarmwines.com melanie avalon and use the coupon code melanie avalon to claim your penny bottle that's dryfarmwines.com melanie avalon all right now back to the show hi friends One of the most valuable things that I do every single night of my life is my infrared sauna session. The brand that I use is Sunlighten. I did a lot of research on infrared saunas before deciding on them. Their saunas are so high quality. They're low EMF. And what I really love is they have a solo unit. That's what I have. And it's really great if you live in a small apartment, might be moving. It's just really an amazing investment and they have incredible deals and offers on it right now. You can actually get up to $200 off with the code Melanie Avalon, or if you're talking to a rep, just tell them that I sent you. And like I said, that will be up to $200 off. And that will also get you $99 shipping. Normally the shipping is like $600. So that's a really, really big deal. And if you do purchase a sauna, forward your proof of purchase to podcast at melanieavalon.com And I will also send you a signed copy of my book. What, when, why? If you'd like to learn more about the science of sauna, two resources. I interviewed the founder of Sunlighten, Connie Zach. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And then I also recently did an epic blog post all about the science of sauna. We'll also put that in the show notes. All
1: right, now back to the show.
2: I am so, so passionate about the importance of regenerative agriculture. So I just wanted to provide a resource for listeners because you mentioned Belcampo and I've had Anya Fernald on the show. So I'll put a link to an interview I did with her. And I've also had Rob Wolf on for Sacred Cow. I'll put a link to that just further education for listeners who want to learn more about the implications of regenerative agriculture on not only our health, but the environment and our entire world. And then something else that I wanted to touch on, the concept of ketones and people people just freaking out about ketones. And I just recently learned that the whole idea of nutritional ketosis and the ketone level that's associated with that was basically from like One study in like the nineteen eighties, I think Finney and Volick, it it wasn't looking at long-term people on ketogenic diets. So we don't necessarily know, although there's a lot more data on it now, just people, you know, sharing their data, but like high ketones, that might be for a lot of people transient and higher in the beginning of a ketogenic diet or in fasting. And there's quite possibly the potential that the longer you're doing fasting or a ketogenic diet that you know, your blood level of ketones might not be as high. And I just think it's one of so, so many confusions in the world where people get these ideas that are talking to very nuanced, complex systems in the body, and they get synthesized down into this one idea that people just grab on. And I think it's doing so much detriment. So sorry, that's a soapbox, <laughs> but I just really appreciate
0: yeah, it's so important. And I want people to have like, if if what you're doing is working for you, keep on doing it. That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the vast amount of people that don't know these amazing tools exist. And I want to empower them to lean into this or the people within the community where they, maybe what they did worked for a time, but then they get in stuck and they're like, whoa, I have to pivot. But if I pivot, I'm a failure. Or if I pivot, I'm like, everything I thought was, Was true for my health isn't. So it's okay to evolve. It's okay to pivot. It's okay to experiment. It's okay to ask questions. And what served you at one point in your life isn't necessarily what you needed to do forever and ever. So that's the variability and the variety that I try to put throughout all my books because that's clinical practice. That's what 12 years of talking to people all day long has done for me is that if you hung your way, you hung your hat on one way of doing things for everyone, or if you hung your hat on one way of doing things for you for the rest of your life, you're going to be proven wrong. It's just a matter of when, not if. And you have to be comfortable with asking questions. You have to be comfortable with evolving. And that doesn't make you a failure. And you sh- cannot like shame and obsess your way into health in this way. It's unhealthy. Because it's that stress and anxiety around healthy foods. We Why the heck are we even doing this if, we're, if it's such a source of dread and obsession? This should, there should be an art to wellness. I mean, that's why even I call my podcast that, is the art of being well. It's like, let's just get out of like the obsession and into the art of, I said it, I think in the, in the inflammation spectrum, but is that wellness is sacred art. You are the masterpiece. I think if people started seeing themselves as a work of art instead of this – like machine that they have to like obsess about, I think it'd be so much more enjoyable for people and more sustainable.
2: I hadn't really thought about it this way before, but when making a dietary change, I mean, trying something new is scary, but I think the scariest or the hardest part for so many people, I know for me is just letting go of something that was working for you because we just feel like, if it was working, it's like, it seems safe and it feels like it should keep working. And it can be so hard to let go of the idea that maybe this isn't working anymore. And still accepting that it did work at one point, because it can feel like a failure. If (laughs) you can feel like, oh, maybe it was never right for me, but you know, maybe things have their time and place. So something I'd love to briefly touch on, because you touched on the microbiome and the role of gut health. I just wanted to touch on two really fun little things that I learned in your book Not little, but two things in your book that I learned that I had never, ever heard before that really blew my mind. One was that you talked about how in bariatric surgery, it's been posited that the weight loss actually is from shifts in the gut microbiome. I had never heard that.
0: It's powerful. I mean, I think if you look at the causation, the causative facets to fasting and the impact that has, what researchers are exploring are the gut centric changes that are happening there and that being a major part of the health benefits. And yeah, studies have also shown that with gastric bypass bariatric surgery on the same thing is like when you change someone's microbiome in a significant way, what that can do to someone's metabolism. And also their mood and their brain and hormones and so many other things. It's such a major facet of my work, so I found that study really compelling. And obviously, over time, I'm excited for the other, like more studies to come out in that avenue to really look at the gut piece of the puzzle. And it's not just about digestion, which is obviously that too. I mean, that's why there's studies to show, show people that have all sort of colitis or Crohn's or different inflammatory issues, even I, like IBS, that intermittent fasting can be good for those people, which is great. But it's well, what else is going to happen when we regulate the gut? It's not just improved bowel movements. It, it's going to impact your metabolism. It can impact your brain. It can impact inflammation levels. And it it can, it can impact so many other things. So the possibilities are endless when you start improving gut health.
2: I feel like the two biggest chasms in our present planet where we just don't we just don't know what's down there would be probably the depths of the ocean and then our our microbiome. <laughs> and then so this, the second other gut thing that I learned that I don't know how I never came across this anywhere because I'm a little bit obsessed with Gluconeogenesis, just the concept, like <laughs> when it happens, why it happens, is it stressful? Is it not stressful? Is that a good thing? Is it a bad thing? I learned that there's a different type of gluconeogenesis that occurs in the intestines, intestinal gluconeogenesis, and it actually decreases blood glucose. I was wondering if you could talk at all a little bit about that.
0: Yeah, this, that was a section around fiber, actually, and plant fiber. So there, there's two main different types of gluconeogenesis or making new glucose that are being explored hepatic gluconeogenesis is what we typically hear about within the keto community or the fasting community with protein moderation specifically within the ketogenic community is that's why you don't want to do a high protein diet for long term because of the impact that gluconeogenesis could have on blood sugar and ketone levels so and that's why ketogenic diet is high fat, moderate protein, low carb. Now, obviously, a lot of people within the carnivore community or the carnivore keto community, they're going to say that protein moderation is not that big of a deal. It's really the carb restriction. And I would agree with that for most people. But if you're looking at mTOR and a lot of the longevity benefits and the anti-cancer benefits of, of the ketogenic diet and intermittent fasting, which I mean, ketogenic diet for all intents and purposes is mimicking a lot of the same benefits of fasting because both are supporting. Beta hydroxybutyrate and all the benefits that that comes as an epigenetic modulator. But intestinal gluconeogenesis, and it's made through eating plant fibers, has a glucose lowering effect. And I go over the studies in the book. And the fact that overall, for most people, it's going to help lower serum glucose. And it's also going to lower insulin resistance and improve increased satiety levels, meaning you're not going to feel hangry and have insatiable cravings. So that's why, one of the reasons why. I don't want people to become overly zealous and obsessive and orthorexic when it comes to you know a salad or like ve- uh, non-starchy vegetables or fiber-rich vegetables because the net carbs when it comes to these vegetables are really low. But if you look at total carbs, you're going to think, dang, if I'm having 20 grams of carbs in a day, how the heck am I going to have vegetables? Or even if you're a little bit looser, go to like 30, 40 grams of carbs. How the heck am I going to have vegetables? So I talk about the context matters here. So the context around carbs matters. And lumping all carbs and behaving the same way in the body is just very oversimplistic, very reductionist, and it doesn't look at the nuance of how these carbohydrates, which fiber by its very definition is a form of carbohydrate. How do these things behave in the body? Well, fiber behaves very different in the body versus you know, a can of soda. So I want people to be mindful of that.
2: I love it. Always back to the nuance. So maybe something that we can end on that is a more fun topic than dealing with all of the the issues of our current culture. So when it comes to fasting, something that we talk about a lot on the intermittent fasting podcast is the whole idea of clean fasting and what you drink during the fast. and there's there's a whole world of debate and nuance there. But you have an epic epic section on tea. And it sounds like it's really a passion of yours. So I was wondering if you could just tell listeners a little bit about your favorite teas or teas that they might like to drink while fasting. Cause I didn't realize, um, I remember, I remember when I first learned that all tea is the same thing and that like, it's all the same plant that blew my mind. (laughs) I was like, what? I feel like I've been lied to my whole life. So teas.
0: So teas, the tea on tea. So the reality is I am T- kind of a tea aficionado i, I am a kind of obsessed with it and i when i was writing the book i was i remember exactly where i was basically where, I, where i'm i like a very like visual memory and when i was writing it, i was sitting on my deck this is over 2020 this is like the height of covid i'm writing about tea and i thought this is so i'm so pumped about putting this section in the book and the publishers are always in this normally always in the same page as me and they I'm like, okay. I wonder what they're going to think about this, but it was it's it, when the it's within the toolbox chapter. I think is that where we put it. Is that the reality is like, it's such a awesome fasting drink, and people are always asking me, both with patients and people on social media, like what breaks a fast. And of course, there's diverse opinions about that, like everything else. But the reality is, I think tea is a great tool because even if certain teas don't work for you. There's so many, there's a myriad of different players within the tea kingdom that people can, can experiment with. So you're right, Camellia sinensis is the main type of tea. So that's the the tea, the plant that makes green tea, black tea, white tea, oolong tea, pu'er tea. So that's that tea, and they're, they're different, like how you can get green, white, and black, and all the different types of black and green and white is because that's how it's grown, when it's picked where it's grown, like in the shade versus in the sunlight, where it's picked, how it's processed after it's picked, if it's laid out in the sun, if it's fermented, if it's roasted. I mean, that's what makes all the types of green, white, and black tea. So I include all of those different ones with the research around those in the book. And then all the tisanes, the, the the non-caffeinated Tr- they're not even true teas. They're just like things like rooibos or African redbush, hibiscus tea, all the herbal teas out there. So, I wanted people to have variety and be able to pick and highlight these different amazing, exciting health benefits of these and experiment with them because they all have their own strong suits. They all have their own benefits or highlighted things that researchers are exploring with. So, depending on the things you want to focus on during your fast, you can bring some of that in. And, and tea has also been used as a meditative, introspective, intuitive tool as well. And I talk about that of using one of those metaphysical meals, like what do you do when you're fasting, can be a mindfulness practice around drinking tea, which I think is really beautiful too, and from China and, and North and South Korea and, 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 and Asia, basically. So it's a, it's, it's a great tool. I love using it. I have it when I'm fasting or when I'm not fasting, but specifically when you're fasting, I think it could be a great thing. And I even talk about the research around Earl Grey, which is probably my favorite tea. But it's a bergam- it has it's a black tea with bergamot in it, which is bergamot is a citrus from Calabria in Italy. It's been shown the polyphenols in this, in bergamot has been shown to increase autophagy pathways or cellular renewal sort of I mean you're people know about this, but it's an anti-accelerated aging pathways, but fasting does that as well. So I I oftentimes will have a tea with bergamot in it when I'm intermittent fasting. And we actually partnered with Peak Tea, which if you don't know about Peak Tea, they're freaking amazing. But they, um, Simon Cheng is a good friend of mine and we, they have like a Dr. Will Cole fasting tea bundle. We have dot drwillcole.com with some green uh, fasting tea, but then herbal tea too. So people that are sensitive to caffeine, there's but all the teas are higher with the bergamot in it, which can help with the autophagy. But it also improves, increases satiety signaling. So it can make your, make your fast easier as well. And then you get all the therapeutic benefits of it as well.
2: See, you know, even right there, the nuance. So because I asked for questions for you for the show and somebody asked about the tea and then they, they showed me a study that <laughs> showed the complete opposite of what you think. It showed that tea actually led to more insulin release, unless you added like dairy to it, which I'm not saying that to have a whole debate about that, just just to show that everything is always so nuanced and there seems to be you know so many things going on. I guess that's why it's really hard to find clarity with everything, but teas
0: you know, do work. And if, you, if one tea doesn't work for you, it doesn't, because I've seen studies too, and people talk about that. But look, I mean, that's like saying cortisol is raised during your fasting, so you shouldn't fast. I mean, that's silly. It's... it's it, the context is lost. I mean, it's a hormetic effect, fasting is. So people are like, fasting's not good because it raises cortisol. Well, yeah, because it's part of the actual benefits of that, the body's doing a symphony of different pa- cascades. So the fact that a drink can raise insulin a little bit isn't a bad thing. That goes back to the earlier point is that we think the body's so static and like raising insulin is a bad thing. Well, it's not. The body's doing a lot more than that and context matters. And looking at glucose, looking at ketones, looking at insulin, looking at all of this and looking how the person feels when they do that, all of that matters. And isolating one biomarker and saying that's bad, it's again, reductionist, but I, I get the point. But if something doesn't work for you, if you something, if you don't like insulin raising a point or two, then go to a, a caffeine-free tea. There's many options out there.
2: Are you considering writing a tea book?
0: Oh, man. (laughs) Maybe. I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. I'll I'll see over this year and probably next year, I'll be working on my fourth book. So we'll see where, where the pen takes me. I don't know yet.
2: Oh, I'm so excited. I'll have to bring you back for that. Well, thank you, Dr. Cole. So I have, I mean, I was just thinking about it. I have had so many conversations about fasting in my life. I mean, By the time this airs, we'll probably be almost to two hundred and fifty episodes on the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. I could honestly say this conversation just now was one of my most favorite conversations I've ever had about fasting. Like This was just amazing. It's going to stick with me. And I can't wait. Like, I want to air it right now. I'm going to be like, everybody listen (laughs) right now. So thank you so much. I know that, you know, you had all the controversy and I just really, really appreciate your approach and everything that you're doing. Given all the controversy and all that, was there anything else you wanted to emphasize for listeners?
0: Well, no, I I think maybe context with that matters too. It's like, I said this, but I'll say it again, is that there was 99% so much positivity in the book. The book hit the New York Times best-selling book. That means people bought it. <laughs> people that, people that hated on the book didn't buy the book. But you know what they did do? They raised they really helped the algorithm, so I have to thank them because it actually helped more people hear about the book and read the book. So it's positive. It's all positive. And what was met, was born out of that small sect of people that are toxic tribalist people. And they're in every group. They're in the wellness community. They're in political stuff. They're in everything. It is what's happening with our culture right now. It doesn't really matter at the end of the day. I mean, people that know what we do, people that know what we're talking about, understand the message that we're talking about. It's a positive thing. Getting people healthy is a positive thing. I'm still so happy that the people at the end of the day are loving the book and I'm thank you for the opportunity. No, of
2: course, thank you so much. You might remember this from our last conversation, but the last question that I ask every single guest on the show, and it's just because I appreciate so much, and you talk about this all throughout the book, but the role of mindset. So what is something that you're grateful for?
0: I don't remember what I said last time, but I mean, I'm pretty much a routine person, and I, I, we have a gratitude practice every day before we're consulting patients online. We uh, go over case reviews, but we also start with the gratitude practice even before that. And we do a prayer and meditation as a team and it's really a cool time. So, I mean, I'm grateful. I probably said my wife and my kids last time because I'm like internally grateful for my wife and my two kids. I'll say something different cuz I don't I don't say this but I am extremely thankful for them. It's my team. My team's amazing and a lot of them have been with me for 8, 9, 10, 11 years, so but most of my career they've been with me and we're just an awesome, well-oiled, athletic team meaning that we're responsive and we love our patients so much and I couldn't do it without them. They run the clinic with me and and help me manage all the cases and and even like the podcast stuff. So getting all that stuff organized, I could not do it without them. So I am, I'm thankful for them.
2: Awesome. Well, I love that so much. Again, listeners, I'll put links to everything in the show notes, any other links that you want to put out there for people to best
1: follow your work. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Awesome. Bye.
0: Bye. Have a good day.
1: Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon biohacking podcast. For more information,